Hear now the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your good and loving words to us in this psalm. We ask that this morning you would fulfill your promises to us to change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Willis Weatherford. I'm the pastor to students here, so middle schoolers and high schoolers. And today we're taking a short break from our series on Ephesians to look at this uh, long psalm that I just read. And I'm preaching on this psalm. It's one that um, I know and love. It's one that many of you are familiar with. You know and love it. And it's all about this connection between knowledge and love. My first experience with love came when I was in, uh, when I was just starting college and just started dating uh, the woman who's now my wife, Mary. And something I started doing, I'm not exactly sure why, but I started keeping a little list, writing down things that you know, Mary liked, writing down things about her. So it'd be like just little things like um, favorite berry, raspberries, favorite chocolate, mint dark lint, uh, favorite movie, the sound of music, you know, just random details about her. And as this list grew, not only did I know more about Mary, but every time I remembered one of those details, it showed her how much I cared about her. It showed her that I wanted to really know her. Life with someone requires knowing them. And Jesus said something similar in John seventeen three. 
He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we're gonna look at each of the four main sections of this psalm to hear what God is telling us here as David meditates on how well his God knows him. And the first thing we discover is that God intimately knows you. God intimately knows you. The first six verses of this psalm emphasize how completely and intimately God knows each one of his children. So verse one, God, you have searched me and known me. David uses God's personal name here. When you see Lord, all caps in the Bible, that's Yahweh, God's personal name. He uses that name. Yahweh is the kind of father who searches and knows his children. Verses two through four say, God knows me when I sit and when I rise, my going out, my lying down, all my ways. The searching that God does of us comes with comprehensive knowledge. Growing up, my parents had a few acres of woods on a Kentucky hillside, and there was nothing I loved more than to just go down in those woods for hours and explore and get to know them. I probably spent thousands of hours, hundreds of days, uh, walking through the woods. I camped out in them dozens of nights, and, you know, I learned all about them. I looked under every rock. I knew where the deer and rabbit trails were. I knew which hole in the creek there was a really big, ugly, mean, snapping turtle. I climbed every climbable tree. I, cl- I like fell out of a couple of them. I knew the best place to go ice fishing for minnows in the wintertime. I knew which trees the screech owls would roost in at night. I knew what the dirt smelled like. I knew where the wildflowers grew. I knew where I would always find a cedar tree with dry bark so I could start a fire even in a rainstorm. I searched and knew every inch of those woods. Nobody knew them better than I did. And that's how God knows his people. That's how God knows you. In verse five, we see he also guards and protects what he knows. You hem me in behind and before and have laid your hand upon me. My daughter, Juniper, is almost three and and when she wakes up at the night uh, crying, scared or something, I go in and I, I tuck her in on either side and I put my hand on her and I say, it's okay, it's okay. I love you, I'm with you. God also keeps you and protects you because he knows you. And this is all just way too much for David to wrap his head around. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This knowledge really is too much for us. We'll always have trouble believing and remembering that God actually knows all about us, that he knows us this well, that he's interested enough in us to keep all we are in his mind because we think God's like us. You know, we have a hard time focusing on more than one thing at once or we have a hard time understanding the people that we love. But God's not like that. This psalm reminds us he's different. His knowledge is complete. He pays attention to you fully. I think though, sometimes I actually resist being known this personally by God. You know, sometimes I resist being known this personally by people. If you're like me, you want people to know you really well when it comes to the things about yourself that you're proud of, you know, that you're really good at. We want people to have a PhD in the subject of our strengths, but also be totally ignorant on the subject of our weaknesses, right? We don't want them to know about our secrets and our weaknesses, the things we're not good at. We prefer to keep those things less well known. 
And so we make it harder for people to get close. You know those bumper guards that we put on our docks or our boats to keep the boat from bumping into the, the dock? We have those too, right? Which of these bumpers do you use? Perhaps you talk too much to keep the conversation on safe topics. Or maybe you don't talk at all to avoid saying something you'll regret. Or you draw other people out so you can avoid being asked those questions about yourself. Maybe you've ended relationships when they got too intimate, too close. Or if you love gossip, you might try to find out things about other people so that you can tell them to other people, which is way safer than actually knowing other people. These bumpers are just one of the ways, uh, some of the ways we keep people from knowing everything about us because we fear if they did, they would reject us. We do this with God too. When we forget that he already knows us completely, we put up bumpers to keep ourselves safe and to keep our secrets safe from him. We avoid him, we ignore him, we fill our heads with knowledge about him rather than filling our lives with time with him. We follow his ideas with our brains, but not his emotions with our hearts or his actions with our lives. But the good news about God is that he's always cutting these bumpers away. He moves towards us. He pursues us. And that's where this psalm turns next. God persistently pursues you. No matter where you might go to get some distance, God pursues you there. Where do you go? For the psalmist, it might have been the depths of the earth or the depths of the sea. Where is it for you? If we had written the next few verses of this psalm, it might have gone something like this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? What if I ascend to the corner office of success or descend into the darkness of cynicism? What if I take the wings of the iPhone and dwell in the infinite Twitter feed? What if I say, surely the anonymity of the internet shall cover me and the light about me be night? In a room this size, all these things are common, like we do this. We do many more things to protect ourselves from God. But no matter where we go or what we do, God says, I'm there. I am there. Even there my hand shall guide you. My right hand shall hold you. Even the darkness is not dark to me. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with me. God pursues you because he wants to be with you. We get this wrong a lot of times. We imagine that the thing that God wants most from us is our holiness or our obedience or sacrifice or even just our attention. But all of these are secondary to his primary purpose. God wants to be with you. He actually named himself this, Emmanuel, God with us. From the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle and the temple and the prophets, even if you don't know those things or what they are, you need to know that the Bible, the big story of the Bible is all about the God who loves you, pursuing you to be with you. And he'll stop at nothing to close any separation you try to create. Did you know that God actually enjoys your presence? It's good for him to be in a room with you. He likes that. He'll stop at nothing to close the separation you try to create. The most extreme example of this in our passage is verse eight, where he says, or David says, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol is literally the grave. 
the ground where we're put when we die. God never leaves his children alone, even at death. If he'll follow you there to the grave, he'll follow you anywhere. You can't go somewhere dark enough, sick enough, hidden enough, depressed enough that God won't chase you there. This kind of persistent pursuit is one of the most redemptive themes in the Harry Potter novels. Harry's friends pursue him kind of like God pursues us, actually. Um, and spoiler alert, if you are waiting to read the books or you're too young to yet, uh, you might want to close your ears for this part because I'm going to give away some of the plot lines. But for those who don't know, Harry's a young English boy who discovers early on that he's a wizard and that the most powerful wizard in the world wants to kill him. So again and again, Harry finds himself confronted with tasks of terrible danger and constant threat of death. But he's not alone. He has friends, Ron and Hermione. They do what friends do, spending time together, uh, having adventures, getting into fights. And they get to know each other really well. They become very close. Yet Harry knows, as long as Voldemort, this evil wizard, wants him dead, um, he's a danger to his friends. And so he, he pushes them away. He, he leaves on perilous journeys without telling them to try to get away from them. Sometimes he even uses magic on them to keep them from coming after him. But time and again, they pursue him. They keep coming after him. And finally, in book five, Harry, reve- Harry reveals to his friends this prophecy that either he will kill Voldemort or Voldemort will kill him. Neither can live while the other survives. And in light of this revelation, association with Harry is more dangerous than ever. Um, but I want, you to, I want you to hear Harry's internal response. Um, I'm going to read it. As his, as his friends begin to respond to this revelation of this prophecy, hear his response. Harry did not really listen. A warmth was spreading through him that had nothing to do with the sunlight. A tight obstruction in his chest seemed to be dissolving. He knew that Ron and Hermione were more shocked than they were letting on, but the mere fact that they were still there on either side of him, speaking bracing words of comfort, not shrinking from him as though he were contaminated or dangerous, was worth more than he could ever tell them. J.K. Rowling wrote Ron and Hermione into Harry's story because um, without them, it's just, it wouldn't be nearly as rich. Their presence makes it so much richer. Without them, Harry couldn't do what he eventually does. Their pursuit of him impacts his story. And as we turn to the next few verses of this psalm, we find that God's pursuit of us impacts our stories as well. Not only does God know you intimately, not only does he pursue you persistently, he's also at work in your life story day by day. God is at work in your life story. And when I say life story, I just mean all the events of your life um, along with their meaning and their significance. Not just the things that have happened, but why and like how it matters. God's at work in all of that from the very beginning. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit you together. Think back to the last time you knit something. Uh, Or in my case, the last time you saw someone else knitting something. It's time consuming. It's detailed. It involves counting and math somehow. There's a reason many of us choose not to knit. But God chose to spend that kind of attention on you. God carefully, purposefully, lovingly devoted attention to putting you together. And he doesn't go hands off 
after that, he remains closely and actively engaged in every page of your life because he's the author of your narrative. Look what David says. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The image here is of an author meticulously crafting a literary masterpiece with each character and scene contributing to the story that he has for you. There's no unnecessary chapter. There's no throwaway line in your story. There's no insignificant role or person. And this is why David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. When we realize that God's thoughts are not only perfect and holy thoughts, but also thoughts about us, that's precious. Okay, now I want you to track with me here. I'm gonna point out a parallel that has important application. Okay, so when this psalm says that God is the author of your life story, we need to notice a parallel. What else, other than your life story, was authored by God? The Bible, right? We all know that. God is the author both of the Bible and of your life story. So I'm not saying the two stories are the same in every way, um, you know, both fully trustworthy. Obviously, it's not that way. But God clearly presents himself in the Bible as authoring both the Bible and our stories. Okay, I'm gonna pile on top of that another parallel that we need to see. I've noticed in my life, it can be unsettling to recognize that God's the author of my life because, you know, what if you don't like your life? What if you don't like parts of your story? What if your biography so far would read like a tragedy? Maybe just a, a jumbled up mess even, it makes no sense. Um, or what if it's just boring? What do we do with that? Sometimes you read a book or, a, or watch a movie and you decide for whatever reason, you really don't wanna get lunch with the author. You don't wanna meet them. You didn't really wanna hang out with them. Would you get lunch with the God who wrote your life story? Because the Bible has hard things too. You know, there's violence, strange customs, bad people doing terrible things, good people suffering. There's confusing parts, there's boring parts. Here's the application of these parallels, okay? We can come to God with the hard aspects of our life stories in the same way we come to him with the hard aspects of the Bible. The first thing to do with a difficult passage in the Bible is to look at it in light of its context. The whole chapter, you know, the, the nearby verses, the, the whole book, and ultimately the big creation, rebellion, redemption, glorification storyline of the Bible. We need to see where that passage fits and how it fits, what else is going on around it. Now, finding out how these hard passages fit in the Bible, it doesn't make them not hard. But it does, um, it does help us to move towards the God who is the author in trust. It doesn't always answer all our questions, but it helps us see the meaning and trust the author in the midst of the question. So I wanna invite all of you to do this with the hard parts of your story. Look for parallels between your own life experience and things that happened in the Bible. Look for God's response in those situations. See how God works in the often difficult lives of his people and the many different ways that their stories are touched by the threads of redemption. See how they cry out to God in the midst of their questions. That's what David does here in our psalm, actually. 
He, he's asking God to help him understand the hardships of his own life. He notices one of the conundrums of his own story, which is these evil men of violence who deserve punishment, but instead they prosper. And in verse 19, he bursts out, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. And David asks God after that to lead me in the way everlasting. Can you see what he's asking? He's asking God to help him see and live his life in the context of this bigger story, the everlasting story. That's what the way everlasting is. It's the way of life shaped by the redemptive activity of God. David knows that unless God leads him in the way everlasting, he won't be able to trust God and follow him even in the midst of the difficult parts of his life. All of us need God to lead us in the way everlasting. All of us need to see how we, how our life stories fit into the bigger story of what God is doing in the world. How can we get that perspective? How can we see our lives that way? This is where we find out how intimately God knows us, how persistently he pursues us, how heavily he's invested in our life stories. God didn't give David a tidy answer to his troubles. God gave David the promise of a Messiah. God has given us himself. The God who knows you makes himself known to you. In the midst of all the hard and confusing parts of our stories, we find that God has written himself into them. Jesus Christ knit his thread alongside ours that he might make God known to us, that he might win our trust in the midst of our questions. In Christ, we find the God who intimately knows us, who persistently pursues us, who's at work in our stories on full display. David says of God, you are acquainted with all my ways. Jesus knows you like this. Not only does he have the divine knowledge of everything that you've ever thought or said or done or you know, what your life is like, but he also experienced all the highs and lows of humanity. He laughed with his friends. He confronted enemies. He wept with the hurting and grieved for his friends. He was tempted in the desert. He knows what each chapter of your life is like. And this means that you're not alone in the hardest parts of your story. Jesus understands them because he has lived them. He's been around them. David says, if I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you are there. I don't think he knew how prophetic these words were, but God knew. God knew. Before you were born, Jesus fulfilled them. Before you were born, Jesus went to the grave for all of us to draw us out of spiritual death into life with God. He descended to the dead that you might ascend into heaven and find God there. And this means that the very hardest parts of your life stories are within reach of the redemptive work of God. They're within reach of his healing and his help and his comfort. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. And while we don't always see that healing or know how it's gonna happen, we're invited to believe that it will happen just as surely as we believe that we'll be raised from the dead because of the work of Christ. And so we find that Jesus fulfills and expresses the character that God has always had. As he makes God known, we discover that God is as he has always been, that the God Israel was getting to know during the Old Testament is the God we can know in Christ. You can know this God. He has become knowable, searchable for you. 
If we would only devote a fraction of all the energy that we devote to our work and our school and our families and our relationships, rightly so, to knowing God, our hearts would stir with purposeful life like the woods on a warm spring morning. So I want to draw two final points of application from this passage to help you get to know the God who knows you. Notice, I didn't say to help you know more about God. That's very worthwhile, but it's not what this passage is talking about. We want to know God himself, personally, through lived experience together. And the first way to do this is to get help redemptively interpreting your life story. If God's at work in your life, as this psalm says he is, learning what he's doing there will help you to get to know him better. This isn't just self-centered navel-gazing. Because your goal isn't to know yourself mainly. It's to get to know the God who has written you. The God, to, to get to know what he's doing in you and around you. And this can be really hard and scary work. I mean, as we think back on our life stories, there's probably some hard, even scary parts there. So it's hard to go back into that. But it is worth it, and it's important not to go it alone. A trusted friend, pastor, or counselor can help you see the threads of redemption that are running through your past and present. So the first way to get to know God better is by finding some help uh, redemptively interpreting your story. And second, you can attend to God's word through meditation. To get to know God better, you can attend to his word in meditation. He has um, expressed himself so richly in his word there are mysteries of God, beauties of God, joyful experience of God, experiences of God, ways of life with God that you haven't experienced yet, that are out there waiting for you. So dig into his word. But meditating is more than just, you know, reading the words in the Bible. We need to slow down. When you find a truth about God, pause. Think about it. Think how it applies to your life. Ask what it calls you to do. Ask how it touches down in your life, how you've seen that. How does it comfort your hurts? Memorizing scripture is a great way to begin this process. Hymns can be helpful. If you can, find someone you know who meditates on God's word and ask them just what they do. How do they do that? Even set up an appointment to let them do it with you some, sometime. Uh, meditate on God's word to get to know him better. And as I close here, I want you to remember these just two things to do are ways to experience communion with the God who loves you and wants to be with you. He enjoys being with you. He wants to be with you because he loves you. You're his child. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that though you know us so fully and perfectly, you didn't turn away from us in the midst of that knowledge, but instead turned towards us, actually came to us, making yourself known to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.